Hey, this is Nick from Pinyao. You're listening to 3CR. Please support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. Give money back to the people that give music to you. Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock. On Community Radio 3CR. All groups of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker League. Good morning, good morning listeners. It's just on one past nine o'clock here on Asia Pacific Currents on your favourite community radio station, 3CR Radio. My name is Pierre Morrow and I'll be flying solo this morning. Uh, Giselle's not feeling well, so she'll be probably out for two or three weeks, but... uh, She'll be back, and of course, uh, given that it's uh, mid-November, almost, uh, what is it, it's the 10th of November, there's only um, about five shows left for us before we have the summer break. I think our last program is going to be the 15th of December, but as usual, we'll be bringing news from the Asia-Pacific um, region, and um, and of course, Asia-Pacific Currents is brought to you by Australia-Asia Workerlinks. You can go to our website, all the W's at aawl.org.au. Our website is still under uh, construction, but we've got a, a timetable now. We believe that it'll take uh, up to January, February to have it fixed, and well, it's actually going to go and upgrade as well. So um, hanging tough there, but you can still see us on um, Facebook and Twitter, just uh, Google um, uh, Australia Asia worker links on those platforms. And um, thank you very much to Solidarity Breakfast for another very interesting program. And that uh, song you heard was Sweet Struggle by Mia Dyson. Now, on today's program, in the second half, actually slightly before the second half, just because it's a slightly long interview, will go about 17 minutes, um, I was fortunate enough to talk to Joe Dar, which he, he's a long-time Syrian uh, activist, um, and uh, regular listeners would have heard him before over these um, last eight years, really, that the uprising in Syria has gone. And so we we really talked about um, the last eight years and, and what's happened to the popular uprising and where to now. So it's quite an interesting uh, analytical and look back type of uh, of discussion really more than interview. So stay tuned for that. They'll probably go on about uh, 12 past um, 9 o'clock. And, uh, but of course, um, we'll have all the news uh, round up uh, from the region. And uh, for the people in Melbourne, um, there is a rally today at uh, two o'clock outside the State Library to stand against uh, racism, which uh, really has always been an issue in Australia, but in the last uh, few years has really uh, come back um, really badly and strongly. So we need to stand together uh, with our communities and fight back. So that's 2 p.m. at the State Library. But we'll go straight into one of the news uh, updates where we go to the Pacific, where an an unprecedented turnout, over 80% of eligible voters, marked the first independence referendum in New Caledonia since the Numia Accords. The referendum was not only carried out in a peaceful atmosphere, but the closeness of the result, 56% to 43%, um, in, uh, well, it's actually close to 56 to 44% in favour of independence, 
independence was a surprise to many commentators. Such a result, though, roughly corresponds to the ethnic breakup of New New Caledonia, where the Canucks make up about 46% of voters. The main campaigning issue of the referendum was on the economic future of New Caledonia slash Kanaki if it declared independence from France. According to the Namia court, another two independence referendums are scheduled in 2020 and 2022. We now go to uh, the Philippines, where it's another tragic story, unfortunately. Benjamin Taruk uh, Ramos, uh, known as Ben, a 56-year-old human rights lawyer, was shot dead last Tuesday night, the 6th of November, in the provincial city of Cabancalan in the island of Negros Occidental by motorcycle-riding men. Ben uh, sustained three gunshot wounds and died on the way to hospital. Ben was a founding member of the National Union of People's Lawyers and had a long history of working pro bono, meaning for free, for accused peasants, environmentalist activists, political prisoners and mass organisations in Negros. Ominously, early this year, Ben had been tagged in a public poster as one of the so-called personalities of the underground arm movement. Ben is the 34th lawyer, that's three, 34th lawyer, killed under the two-year administration of President Duterte. Excluding judges and prosecutors, he's the 24th member of the legal profession and the eighth in the Visayas group of islands. And of course, this is within the context of uh, the last two and a bit years of President Duterte regime uh, in the Philippines, which can only be characterised as a mass murdering uh, administration where the death squads have been totally unleashed and well over 20,000 people have been murdered and uh, I'm sure that uh, his uh, his regime, uh, his uh, government will go down in uh, history as one of the most mord- uh, murderous around. This is James Henry here and you're listening to 3CR 8.55am and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. We now go to um, India, where tens of thousands of workers employed by the roadways department of the northern, in the northern state of Haryana stopped um, um, their two-and-a-half-week strike after the intervention of the High Court in, that, uh, in the state of Haryana in northern India. The workers were protesting at the planned hiring of 700 additional buses from private companies as they saw it as the start of the privatisation of the state bus fleet. Currently, the state bus fleet stands at just over 4,000 buses. The High Court directed that the hiring of the new buses be postponed and for the two parties to sit down and negotiate. More importantly, it also directed the Haryana Roadways Department to reinstate all suspended and dismissed workers and not to carry out reprisals against any other worker. Let me go to another news story here. We now go to Iran, where um, 15 employees of the heavy equipment production company um, with the acronym of HEPCO have been sentenced by the criminal court in Iraq, a provincial city to the southwest of the capital of Tehran, to prison and flogging after striking over unpaid wages. The workers had taken strike action in May earlier in May of this year. The 15 workers, seen by the court as the instigators of the protest action, disseminators of propaganda over the internet and of disrupting public order, were given sentences of between a year to two and a half years in prison 
and 74 lashes. This was not the first strike by HEPCO workers, as they have repeatedly taken action not only for unpaid wages, but also against a decline in occupational safety and uncertainty surrounding continued production. The company has seen the workforce of specialised engineers decline from over 8,000 to around 1,000 today after it was privatised in 2001. Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. And of course, um, given the, uh, all the issues that we bring you uh, around labour struggles in the Asia-Pacific region, it's important to come out and support workers. And on November the 16th is the Global Day to Stop the Repression Against Unionists. Uh, this day was initiated in 2014 as a joint project by a number of labour organisations in the Asia-Pacific region. The 16th of November was chosen as it's the anniversary of the Hacienda Lusita massacre in the Philippines in 2004. The demands of the Global Day are stop the killing of workers in unionists, free our comrades in jail, organising is not a crime, stop sexual violence against, against women workers and support unions as they save workers' lives and unorganised workers are used as cheap labour, a living wage for all. Um, now, all workers, this is a common uh, call for all labour activists around the world to organise action and events on this day in support of workers' rights uh, and to um, free our comrades and stop the repression against trade unions and to stand together, united, around the world as a class. Now, the, um, the Melbourne event will be held this coming Friday, November 16, at half past 5pm, outside the eight-hour monument opposite Trade Souls. So this um, November the 6th, this coming Friday, 16th of November, half past 5pm at the eight-hour monument outside or, or opposite Trade Hall in Victoria Street. And um, uh, again, just to give, um, in terms of, um, of rallies, important rallies, there is the anti-racist rally coming up uh, later this afternoon at 2pm outside the uh, State Library um, to show um, your support and standing solidarity with the communities who are under a uh, current attack in Australia um, uh, because of the race, ethnicity or uh, skin colour or religious belonging. So um, be there at the State Library at 2pm. For 10 days in November... Defend and Extend's public housing will be campaigning on the steps of Parliament House to make public housing an election issue. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us anytime from Wednesday the 14th of November, that's midday the 14th of November, to Saturday midnight the 24th of November and put the spotlight on public housing this Victorian state election. Use Victoria's stamp duty revenue approximately... $6 billion plus per year for public housing. House 1 million Victorians by 2029. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us. Bring tea, bring coffee, bring cakes, bring food, bring your musical instruments. And most importantly of all, bring yourself and your sleeping bag. 
It's just on uh, 12 um, past 9 o'clock here on Asia Pacific Current on your favorite community radio station. As I announced earlier in the show, I, um, we managed to uh, talk to Joe Dar, a activist, long-time uh, labor and human rights activist on Syria and other um, areas in that uh, region. And we really talked about um, the Syrian uprising, where it's at after seven and a half uh, years. Joe, welcome back to the program. Um, we have had you over a number of years about the situation in Syria and some of the others in uh, the so-called Arab Spring. It's uh, So it's always good to talk to you, so thank you very much for making the time again. Thank you for the invitation and it's a pleasure to speak with you. Now, it's been seven and a half years since the uprising first started in Syria. It's, there's been a lot of ups and downs and it's really changed. But my feeling is that uh, Assad, the government of Assad and his cronies have and his allies have really won now and their popular uprising has been defeated. What is your take on this? It's certainly uh, a very bad moment. And in this long-term revolutionary process, we are, in my opinion, I agree, uh, witnessing a, a defeat of this uprising. Although you do have punctual demonstrations, we can say that the, the uprising and its objectives, um, initial objectives of democracy, social justice, equality have been defeated by the Assad regime, its foreign allies, but not only, also by the so-called friends of Syria, the Western countries, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Turkey have also, by their um, intrusions and uh, interventions in the Syrian uprising, also played a very negative role leading to the defeat of the uprising. So I would agree that we are in the current time, living a defeat of the uprising, although there's a lot of things to learn, experience to be, uh, to, to remember, uh, to build on them, to try uh, to continue the struggle. Because even though we might be living a period of defeat, this does not mean that we stop our struggle for emancipation and liberation in Syria or elsewhere. We'll come back to the issue of, like you said, you, you named a lot of countries that intervened and also about the friends of Syria and Qatar, that in the end there were a whole host of reactionaries, imperialist, conservative forces that all, uh, whether or not in different sides, all really um, went against the popular uprising. But we'll get back to that um, afterwards in a few minutes. Because I want to take your first part of the answer, which you're very correct, because these things never really finish. Because there are millions of Syrians that have had to escape. There are still millions of Syrians who are still living in Syria, still don't like the regime. And really, the original issues that led to the uprising, i.e. the repression, the poverty, the exploitation, the corruption are still there, really. So how do you see it in the next few years? First of all, we have to be careful. It's not something mechanic. It's not because you, there's an absence of democracy, an absence of social justice, presence of exploitation, oppression, that naturally you have 
uh, an uprisings or, or, or demonstrations. We should be clear on this issue. This said, it gives the condition for new popular resistance, although um, in countries that witness such a period of, um, of violence, of war, such as in Syria, we have seven, more than seven years now of, uh, of a popular uprising turned into a, not only a, a simple war, but an international war with half of the country destroyed, you know, um, half of the people internally displaced or became uh, refugees. There's a general fatigue among the same population. But at the same time, the, the Syrian regime is facing a lot of contradictions. Uh, it's not a regime that is uh, widely supported, as some has portrayed. On the opposite, a lot of people are tired of this regime, of the militias supporting these regimes. What we need is to build new forms of resistance from with the people that are outside of the country, refugees, and try to connect with people that are inside the countries to try to build circles of resistance. Obviously, uh, within Syria, it would be secret uh, circles of resistance. But um, again, I think uh, history is never finished. We've seen throughout the regions new uh, mobilization, whether in Iraq, that also witnessed long period of war, uh, for example, in the southern of Iraq, in Basra, around social justice issue, uh, against economic exploitation, against, uh, you know, authoritarian regime. And we've seen also other forms of resistance in other countries of the region. So the story is not finished, even though we are living a very particular difficult time. I would certainly agree with, with what you said, especially about the not uh, a mechanistic uh, type of formula. And again, but if you look at the Arab, so-called Arab Spring, both in North Africa and uh, West Asia, the example of Syria is a really tragic one where uh, while other, a lot of other revolutions or uprising were repressed, I mean, obviously the, it's still ongoing. It's it's a, uh, it's not a, it, it's not a, a one day. It is a process. Really, the the, the repression, the bloodbath, has really um, given a warning to many people around the, the region of what might happen if you protest. Do you think what happened in Syria? does serve as a warning to a lot of other uh, progressive movements in the region? No, indeed, I totally agree with you. Uh, Syria is used as an example by uh, other dictatorship by saying to their own people, if you protest, you will bring anarchy to the... I mean, you know, uh, you will bring chaos to the country and we will respond in a similar way. So definitely, uh, it's it's a way to scare people uh, and progressive movement as well that are being continuously repressed in the, in the countries of the region. More generally, the fact that uh, Assad was able to 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 launch a total war uh, on the popular movement using various uh, means of destruction, chemical weapons, normal uh, armed weapons, etc., killing more than nearly, you know reaching to a total of half a million people uh, dead, also gave more opportunity to other regimes to repress their own people in a very violent way, or to even to launch wars against other people. We can take, for example, Saudi Arabia against Yemen. But we could, throughout the region, all the authoritarian regime have been given more opportunity to repress any kind 
of uh, dissent by letting dictators act in their in total uh, freedom. Uh, but this is, I think, a more we are entering a more a period that will witness more authoritarianism throughout the world. And we can see that it's not limited to the Middle East, but even the so-called, you know, liberal bourgeois states in the West are witnessing increasing uh, authoritarianism and repression against social movements, uh, progressive actors, etc., where you have other countries at the periphery witnessing, you know, fascistic movement or uh, such as the last elections in Brazil or Eastern Asia, we're seeing a growth of totalitarianism as well. So it's it's really a global phenomena uh, where the the worst pictures maybe can be seen uh, in Syria with uh, the Assad regime. That's uh, very true what you're saying, and we are going into very uncertain and very dangerous times. But if we could take the time to look back, because you've been a commentator, an activist. Uh, in this uh, Syria uprising for many, many years. If we could go back, uh, say, eight years or seven, in, you know, back to March 2011 or even a bit before, what what do you think could be done better, uh, not necessarily within Syria, just because obviously it was very autocratic, very repressive, but the international working class movement around the world in terms of solidarity, in terms of engaging with the struggle. Where do you think things went wrong and we could do better? I think there are different levels to this question. First of all, I think uh, there was a general lack of knowledge about the situation in Syria. I'm speaking among the left, not different groups, but among the left, there was definitely a lack of knowledge uh, when it came to previous resistance, civil resistance, democratic, progressive resistance in the past decades. After there was a problem, and I think we should have challenged even before 2011 the illusions uh, that certain sections of the left or for worldist uh, political movements or post-colonial you know, ideas had on regimes, uh, Arab nationalist uh, regime or regime issue inherited from a particular forms of fairworldism that turned into authoritarian capitalist regimes. So I think this should have been done much more deeply before 2011 because it led to different forms of illusion, for example, an Assad regime being a socialist, anti-imperialist or secular regime, or also uh, when regarding, you know, uh, so-called Islamic fundamentalist movement as anti-imperialist. This was the case with Hezbollah. So I think uh, a much more radic- radical criticism of these sections of the left that fell into these kind of illusions, which had the consequences of large amount of, uh, fortunately, or large sections of the left turning their back on the popular uprising in Syria, seeing it as a part uh, of a largest conspiracy. Otherwise, I think we we have to take into consideration as well that the left internationally has been weakened by decades of repression, neoliberalism. Not I'm not talking about the Middle East only, but throughout the world in period of crisis, rebuilding itself. And this is something important also, I think, to, to understand the, the lack of internationalism of the international uh, working class solidarity, although at the beginning of the the, pro, the revolution processes in the Middle East, we, we witnessed some forms of solidarity, especially 
with Egypt and Tunis, which were much more straightforward for, for, for the left as the regimes were clearly, you know, collaborating directly with the U.S., etc. So, I mean, these are things to, to take into consideration. And uh, I think also things have been, ha- could have been done much earlier, you know, circles of solidarity or, I mean, centers of solidarity uh, with the Syrian popular uprising with the and linking much more uh, different forms of uh, support when it came not only to the Syrian uprising, showing, you know, the forms of resistance within the country, but also uh, regarding Syrian refugees, opposing Islamophobia. These were key issues. So more about, you know, linking the opposition to different forms of oppression. And obviously, a last point, it was a criticism that is more general. And even among the left that was supportive of the Syrian uprising is the lack of linking the different uprisings together. Whether And not only about the revolutionary processes in the Middle East and North Africa, what we call the, the Arab countries, but, you know, supporting and seeing the links between movements, for example, in Turkey and Iran and within Syria or with the Gulf countries, etc. So making the links with it, uh, with these different popular movements struggling against their own authoritarian uh, movements and being clear that we support, you know, progressive movements within these uh, popular uprisings. So I think this is a range of things that could have been done better. Obviously, it's easy to speak uh, now and what we have to learn from these experiences, as I said, of this memory to build on future resistance, but really the necessity of um, joining the various forms of progressive struggles, linking our struggle against different forms of oppressions and exploitations, I think a key, in, I believe, and internationalism, obviously, in this perspective. Joe, I think you've made some excellent points there. There's obviously lots to discuss, but I want to finish with one last question, which you actually mentioned in the last couple of sentences. One is internationalism and the other one is class. Where do you see, from your point of view, from your interactions with the, with the movements um, that you are in contact with, the whole notion of class analysis and internationalism because we seem to be going towards more and more towards a period of reactionism where the whole issue of class is totally, or not maybe totally, but often disregarded and internationalism is seen as something that um, was a nice word, but right now we've got to look after our own borders. Definitely, this is very worrying. We've seen, for example, speaking as I'm living today in Switzerland, but uh, witnessing some sections of the left, uh, whether in, in, in Europe or, for example, in North Africa, being against, you know, freedom of movement, uh, or at least uh, of workers, of people, of refugees, migrants, etc., while talking about, you know, protecting their workers, the, the national workers, which I think is very dangerous very dangerous putting you know against each other's workers refugees and migrants this is very dangerous and we have to understand that our destinies are completely linked uh, and this is not about you know being idealistic it's really about you know a materialist understanding of the world we're living in uh, we have to see that you know extreme right-wing movements fascistic personalities fascist groups learn from each other 
one of the best example of this was, you know, uh, the, the, in the, the last elections in Brazil with the victory of Bolsonaro, one of his first decision was to move the capital, uh, the, the, the embassy of Brazil in, in occupied Palestine, Israel, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Uh, and this is very symbolic, but very also telling that, you know, oppressors learn from each other, learn from the technique of repressions. We have to learn as well in an internationalist basis to learn from the resistance from people throughout the world and, and also understanding that our destiny is ending. This is the way I think looking forward. So we have to be very clear on the on the side of sections of the left that think that, that are thinking to take a more nationalist perspective that is this this is the wrong wrong road on the opposite. It's a road of defeat. And at the same time, understanding that we need our own independent class uh, perspective, that although on a united front, you know, actions can be made with uh, sections of the liberals, Democrats, etc., but we have to keep our own politics to struggle, not only, you know, the, the, the rise of uh, fascistic extreme right wing movement, but also the whole capitalist uh, states and the, the system we live in that is based on exploitation under different forms of oppression. This is very important, I believe. Joe, that's a, a, a great spot to, to finish, uh, really. So thank you very much, and um, we shall see what happens. But uh, I think solidarity globally on a class basis is the only way to go. Thank you very much uh, for the invitation. It was a pleasure to speak to you, and uh, we'll continue despite everything. That's exactly right. A bit of positivity. All right. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you. And um, you've been listening to an interview with uh, Joe Dar, um, an activist on uh, Syrian uh, political issues. Um, that's all that we've got today for you. We've really got to go. You've been listening to Asia Pacific Currents, brought to you every week by um, Australia Asia Worker Links. Uh, my name is Pierre Morrow. It's right on half past nine here on 3CR Radio. We'll be back next week with another program of bringing you labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. But stay tuned for the next program, which is Palestine Remembered. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.